How can we make sure that climate is something that everyone thinks about, no matter what their sector or their business, it needs to be something that flows through all parts of the economy. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Kavnick, Senior Climate Scientist and Sustainability Strategist at JPMorgan Chase. Sarah has a fascinating role and talks about how her interest in science and math led her to what she does today. She talks about how climate is woven into every aspect of our lives. And she says with the right forecasting, you can even use it to pick the perfect wedding day. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sarah, thank you so much for joining our Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you on today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So you are a colleague of mine, and I just want to say you might have one of the best jobs in our firm. It is certainly one of the most interesting ones. You're J.P. Morgan Senior Climate Scientist and Sustainability Strategist. I love this, and we've never had a role like this before you joined Take This On. So tell us about this job. What exactly is it, and how did this come to be? So I have been brought in to be our senior climate scientist to provide subject matter expertise around the science. Many people realize as they were trying to start doing investing and planning around climate, they didn't have enough information on the science and it wasn't something that they could easily pick up by reading a few papers or a few research reports. And so I was brought in to help provide that subject matter expertise. So I produced research reports on climate and how it's interacting with different sectors or thinking about investments and how it will change the future of investing. I also advise our clients in asset and wealth management to be able to explain how climate affects all of their investments, but then also potentially philanthropy and how they can be thinking about it holistically about how the science is evolving and how it might affect them. And then I also work across our entire business, providing the advice on climate where it's needed. It's so interesting that the topic of climate is so much further than just a nice to know about or something that you would think about outside of a professional context. It's really squarely in the professional and business context now as a risk that we need to be aware of and something we need to plan for and take into account as investors or as business leaders. When do you think that shift happened? You know, why are we at this point right now where it is a business imperative? I've been waiting for this to happen for about 20 years. <laughs> so I thought it should have happened years ago. But I think it's a couple of things. I think that the acceleration of climate change and the manifestations of damages that have happened have really brought it to the forefront of people realizing that climate change isn't something that's decades off from now. It's something in the here and now that needs to be dealt with. And I think also public perception of the problem of climate and needing to do something today instead of thinking about it in the future is also driving that. There's social pressures, and then there's also government regulation that's been developing from those social pressures around being able to start regulating and doing something on climate. So seeing what's happening out there with climate change and climate damages, social pressures on wanting to do something and government regulation are all coming together and creating this moment in time where people are saying, this isn't something that we can put off anymore. It's something that we need to deal with today. And it's not also just about risks. It's also about opportunities for dealing with climate, for both mitigating climate change, but also adapting to it. So your expertise is in hydroclimate, anything related to water. And since that's the extent of my expertise on the science front, you know, will you tell us what that is and why you decided to really go deep in this area? 
aspects of water in every part of climate relates to storms, it relates to water availability, drought, flooding, changes in snowpack. I thought in going to my PhD that water and its manifestations of climate would hit many different sectors and parts of the world. And so that's why I focus on it. And my focus in climate has been understanding how it's changed in the past, how to predict it in the future, and how to understand evolving changes in risks around climate. And really, my scientific research was around developing those tools and techniques, and then also being able to quantify evolving climate risk and how to predict it in advance. So I'd love to really understand now what got you into the field of climate science. Can you talk about your journey, whether that was your early work experiences and also your academic background? Yeah, I grew up in the Midwest and I was really good at math. And I loved math. And so I decided to go to Princeton University. I was lucky enough to get in and to focus on theoretical mathematics and be able to study with Sinai and uh, John Nash, who was famous for game theory. And I loved math and math puzzles. But as I was doing that research, I realized that only a few people in the world would understand what I was really working on. And I was really interested in applying math to actually the real world. And so the two ways that I knew how to do that was I started taking courses in finance and had a certificate in finance. But then I also started taking courses in something called geophysical fluid dynamics. So how the atmosphere moves and how the ocean moves. And that's the fundamentals of climate science. And so I got really interested in climate science. So I had this interest in climate and finance. I graduated from college in 2004 and jobs that combined the two didn't really exist. So first I found myself doing investment banking at Goldman Sachs, covering financial institutions, doing corporate advisory and later structured products for long data financial as well as catastrophe risk. But I saw the need for better climate information in business decision-making. And so I decided to go get a PhD. I went and did my PhD at UCLA in the Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences, but I also got a certificate in Leaders in Sustainability from their Institute of Environment and Sustainability, trying to combine all my interests. And during my PhD, I also explored all the different ways that my skills and my interests would align. So I worked at a startup that did renewable energy forecasting. I also worked at a voluntary carbon registry. So I was really trying to figure out how could I make an impact on climate in the future and trying to build all those little skills around the way to be really effective at that. And so after I finished my PhD, I then went for it in Princeton, New Jersey. I was there for 10 years at the NOAA Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, first as a postdoc funded by NOAA and NSF, and then later as a federal civil servant. And during my time at NOAA as a civil servant, I developed fundamental climate models as well as prediction products for NOAA. And then was able to use that information to advise people of how to deal with climate, what to do, how to plan, what to do in advance, and then also developing new tools around climate risk and understanding climate risk and how it's evolving in time and if we could predict it into the future. And so I should say here, NOAA, which you mentioned, is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA is a lot easier, I think, to say than that. It's amazing to me that you found this perfect blend of the science and the math you know, that you were really able to bring this together. And you did this by really looking at those places where you could bring this two together, like looking at experiences that you can have and where you can actually apply this. Did you purposely do this? Was this very deliberate along the way or were you trying to test things out? It was very deliberate in that I wanted to test things out. (laughs) So I was trying to find those experiences where I could build new skills. And it was also fundamentally intellectual curiosity of the problem. 
I didn't know how I could be affected in finance and climate without first fully understanding climate and climate change and all of the tools that are used to understand and assess climate. Building all of those experiences allowed me to then see clearly where I thought it needed to be applied to finance. And so then coming into JP Morgan, having all those experiences make me understand how that data and information and knowledge of the future can now start to be incorporated into our businesses and into our advisory for our clients. So then tell us more about the team that you're on and the goals. You, know, you mentioned a little bit about what your role does, but day to day, do you think about either company-wide goals or client goals that you're trying to serve? It bounces back and forth depending on the day. So there's a baseline of my trying to think about my thought leadership pieces that I write in the research of whichever topic I'm thinking about for that month, thinking about reading about it, think about how it applies to our clients and how I want to communicate that information. Key critical part of this is making sure whatever I communicate is well understood by everyone. So I'm trying to distill the really complex science for everyone to understand. And then from that, if I'm either having client engagement, I'm thinking about what they care about. And I'm thinking about how to explain to them how climate is going to affect the things that they care about and how I can help them be more informed about those different issues. And when you think about the success of your team, how are you going to measure that? My success will be measured by the number of thought leadership pieces I can get out, so how I can inform people, how many clients I'm able to speak with, and thinking at a higher level who I'm able to influence and be able to have those conversations of getting people to understand that climate is influencing them. And I can happily say that I've already had some really good discussions with some of our clients on really explaining climate and getting them to understand that it's something that they should be thinking about. Whereas when we first started the conversation, they were extremely curious, but didn't think that it would affect them at all. A lot of what you do has very practical applications for business decisions, but I'm sort of curious, are there personal decisions that you can also help influence by understanding climate? For example, when to pick a day in the future where you might want to do something important to you, like get married or something else. Perhaps you found one of my former research pieces that got picked up in some popular presses, how to find the perfect wedding day. With science and statistics and the data and information that we have on climate, you can actually look at nice weather, mild weather, and understand the likelihood of mild weather at different times of year. And that research that I did a couple of years ago, I kept getting asked by my friends who were getting married if they could pick the perfect wedding day. Even actually here now at J.P. Morgan, people search my name and find that and ask me that too. <laughs> so I've had some more junior people ask me when they should get married based on the best wedding date for their location. And so it really goes to show that climate and understanding climate can be deeply personal and it can be an everyday decision making that we have. And in my discussions with my coworkers as well as my clients, often climate is deeply personal. And so they want to talk about it at length on different topics that matter to them. Through those conversations, too, I think people start feeling some control over what the future holds and how they can use that information, use that information intelligently to make their decisions. I think it's going to be so relevant for people. I mean, it, it sounds funny that you can do that, but it's really important. And as you say, it's a way people can relate to what you're doing and maybe just you know, get them more involved in this for other purposes too. When you were coming through your academic backgrounds, math, and then a PhD, what was it like in terms of having women around you or not? You know, what, What's been your experience as a woman in STEM? And did you find you got encouragement, didn't get encouragement? You know, tell us about your journey. Yeah, and in that entire time, in undergraduate, there were only, 
a couple of us that were women in math and in science. And then my PhD program actually was unique in that there were several women in my cohort. And so we were all very close and we all supported each other a lot. And that was really rare in the sciences. Now in graduate school in climate science, it can be roughly 50-50, but at more senior levels, depending on the subfield of climate science, it's more 10 to 20% are at more senior levels. Even at NOAA, at my lab, when I was elevated to a deputy division level, which is a senior level, you're then on a management committee for the laboratory. I was in a cohort of, there were three, three of us women, and that was the first time women were ever in a leadership position. Strides are being made, it's not there. And so it was very isolating at times, but I got a lot of encouragement from my peers and from some really good mentors along the way. And what did they say or do to support you that really made the difference, you know, both as a graduate student, but also kind of when your earlier career as a younger student? Yeah, it was the encouragement to continue to focus on doing good science and thinking about that and encouragement to pursue it and also to pursue PhD and higher level education. There's a lot of research that shows that faculty members don't encourage women and racial minorities at the same rate that they do men. And so as a result, the encouragement that I got from the few that I did to pursue a PhD and to think about it as a career path, that made a difference in my thinking that, oh, I can pursue this and this is something I should pursue. My friends and my cohort of other graduate students and then other postdocs that were women, we all support each other along the way too. You can be extremely isolating when there are very few women in your field. And so having those friends to talk to, even if we are at different institutions, different institutions around the United States, but also around the world, dealing with very similar problems. And so if you talk to each other, the problems that you're facing as a woman in science, and then seeing that they're also facing it becomes a lot less isolating. And then you also have this cohort of women that are telling you, this is how you can deal with this problem, or this is how you should pursue it going forward. And they would give troubleshooting and would help you along the way. I'm curious if you observed any male counterparts having different experiences as they went through their own academic journeys. There were definitely different experiences for some of the men. Some of my colleagues didn't have as much questioning of their ability in the field, I think. And I think that's a common thing when you're a minority in the group, that you have this feeling that you don't belong. Talking to them and having some friends, they would also say, why are you thinking that? Or why are you doing that? You're just as good as us or better. And so that was also really supportive to thinking that you do belong and that you can pursue the career as well. So tell us what you would advise a woman coming up in STEM to do when she might be faced with similar challenges or just even trying to find peers that look like her. Learning how to network also at a network within your school, but if there's also events where you get to meet others from other schools, like build your network from that way. And then you can build your team, your team that you talk to. If I have a question or something I'm thinking about, I still email or text with those friends about what we should be doing on climate. I love that you're keeping your network alive outside of your job with some of the folks that you've come up with. I think that's great. So let's talk about the future of climate change. You know, what keeps you up at night? What are the things that you look at and get really worried about? And do you think we're doing enough as a society, you know, globally to really address these things? Part of the reason that I came to JP Morgan was I felt like I needed to do more on climate. I felt that I had reached a level in my science that I can keep having my influence on my science, but I thought that we needed more in the private sector and thinking about climate and all of the business activities that we undertake and particularly financial institutions have an obligation to be leaders in this and to be thinking about it and advising our clients on it. 
I felt that if science wasn't a part of that, it could be problematic. And so I wanted to be able to help advise on that. And now that I'm here, what's keeping me up at night is, am I still doing enough? How can we do more? And how can we make sure that climate is something that everyone thinks about, no matter what their sector or their business, it needs to be something that flows through all parts of the economy. Sarah, is there any recent research you've done that you think really points to a new or different need that we have to consider? Anything out there that you want to continue to communicate and talk to folks about? The fact that the transition to a greener economy and a lower carbon emission economy, it requires investing not just in energy. So a lot of people traditionally thought that climate investing was just investing in electric vehicles and clean energy. But there's actually emissions also coming for transportation, from buildings, from logistics, from agriculture. And so to be able to get to a world where we halt or we potentially eventually reverse climate change, we actually need investments in all sectors around decarbonization and reducing emissions. So we really have to think more holistically about so many industries, not just the energy industry, but the end-to-end supply chains and everything that we're doing. That's why I make the comment that it's in everything that we should be thinking about. And then even beyond that, climate change is going to continue until emissions hit zero. And so as a result, we are going to have to live with a certain amount of climate change. And so we need to also start investing in adaptation, climate adaptation, because climate change is going to continue. It's actually going to accelerate in the coming years and decades. And so as a result, we also need to be prepared for that. And something I think is really powerful is we actually have the science to know a lot of what is going to happen in the future. And so we can take that information, we can think about it, we can plan for it, and then we can start adapting already. And I think about this all the time as someone who really tries to recycle as much as I can, but also you read these stories where recycling doesn't always, you know, go far enough, whether that's plastics or textiles, you know, what can individuals do and what do you do when it comes to recycling? So I do recycle. Um, Paper and aluminum is recycled at very high rates. It's plastics that we have different markets around the United States and around the world for plastics recycling. But there's also encouragements. There's new technologies for recycling plastics and there's new markets even developing for recycling plastics. And even I think plastics are a next focus around climate and sustainability. And I think we're going to see more on that. I've been thinking about it for a future thought piece about plastics. So there's recycling, you can focus on recycling, but then there's also how you use your money as a consumer or as an investor. And so if you care about plastics, you consume less plastics and you choose to make those personal choices or you choose to also change how you invest, you invest for that as well. But then beyond that, it's decisions of what do you care about for the environment, for climate the most and what types of impacts you want to have. So if you're really concerned at a personal level about your personal carbon footprint, you can look at your personal carbon footprint. And for most people, airline travel is a big piece of that. And so they choose to reduce their airline travel. But then you can have a really outsized impact with your investment dollars and thinking around that. So if you want to invest in climate or you want to have an impact on climate through philanthropy, you can think about that. You can think about what are the types of impacts you want to have and what does that mean for the types of investing you want to do or the types of philanthropy you want to do. And then something I tell everyone is that everyone can have sustainability and climate as part of their life. And so you can think about what you like to spend your time doing. What do you want to do in your hobbies? What are you good at in your job? And you can bring climate and sustainability into that. My daughter really loves gardening. And so as a result, we are gardening and putting out plants that are important for 
habitat for butterflies. And then we also put plants out in the front of our yard in Brooklyn that also help filtrate water and so make cleaner water going into the sewers. So you can think about what are the things you care about and then you can look it up and find things that relate to climate and sustainability within that. I really love that. Thank you for sharing. I'm also curious from an investor perspective, do you think investors are starting to reward companies on their sustainability efforts now? Are they really getting it and looking at the companies that are doing a good job and wanting to invest in them even more? People want to invest on non-financial metrics that relate to climate. Worldwide, there are new regulations developing in Europe, in Asia, and even in the United States around certain metrics that need to be reported around climate. And so the advance of these regulations, the advance and standardization of metrics around climate impacts and around emissions or even water and waste and plastics, that will allow investors to be able to quantify what the impacts of their investment dollars are in companies beyond the financial impacts. And that will allow them to make decisions on where they want to put their dollars and to put their dollars to be the most effective for the climate or sustainability goals that they've set out for themselves. And so I think that standardization, this regulation will push the ability for the investors that care about this to be able to invest with that in mind. Sarah, I can't wait to see more of your work. I think what you're doing is fascinating. And I love the fact that you're bringing it into our business context with our clients, with our partners. So thank you so much for the work that you do. And we really look forward to seeing where you go from here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Sarah Kapnick. Her vast array of experience in finance, academia, and government shaped her trajectory as a leader in climate science. She's also a role model for women in STEM and shows what is possible when you take a deliberate approach to bringing all your passions together. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.